0: Well, good morning to you. I'm so grateful for the time of worship that we have had, as I always am. So grateful for a church family that gathers to lift up the name of Jesus in the way that we do it here at Taylor's First Baptist Church. We began a couple of weeks ago together a study in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Remember where it is now. It's a little hard to find. Start at Psalms, go backwards, and you'll get to it in about three, three books or so. Again, I um, want you to find that in your Bible as we began. We're looking at this book for, for several different reasons at this time. Number one, we're looking at it because its message is so incredibly contemporary. Uh, This is the story about a society gone bad and one man's determination to do something about it. We're looking at this book secondly because I hope we are concerned about the kind of world that our children and our grandchildren are going to grow up in. And we're looking at it because I pray with all of my heart that God wants to raise up out of this congregation some Nehemiahs for this generation, some people who will understand, really understand, that they have been saved by God and called by God to be difference makers. Now, if you were here last time, you know that we talked about Nehemiah, and we spent some time looking at his role as a difference maker. Now, I've included in your message guide this week some of the key points we made last week, and since it's been a couple of weeks since we've looked at them, please bear with me to just simply review them with you again quickly because they're important. First of all, the startling truth from the book of Nehemiah is that God through Nehemiah is going to accomplish in the nation of Israel in 52 days, something that had not been accomplished in 141 years. In just 52 days, God is going to be able to solve a 141 year old problem. That's because he had a dedicated person. He had Nehemiah. But the startling truth from this book transfers to a startling truth for our lives, and that is this, whenever you put God first, church, it doesn't take long. God can change a lot of things, and He can change a lot of things quickly if He can just find some folks who are completely dedicated to Him. Then there was a critical secret that we looked at, and that is that God's method for solving problems and bringing change is never first a program, it is always a person. God is looking for some people today who will just say, yes, Lord. Yes, here I am. I'm willing for you to use me in my family. I'm willing for you to use me in my church. I'm willing for you to use me in my community, in this nation, and among the nations to be a difference maker. That's always God's strategy. It's not a program. It's always first a person that he gives a burden to, a person that he gives a vision to. And this is important truth. And I had a lot of feedback. Probably I had more feedback to this single statement in the message last time than maybe I have any other uh, that, that I've ever made. So please hear it again. If you're sitting here today and you have absolutely no plans to make a difference tomorrow in somebody's life or in your church or your community, if you're here today with absolutely no plans to make a difference tomorrow, you are wasting your today. And then the final thing we saw last time, and this is so important. Nehemiah wasn't a preacher. He hadn't been to seminary. He wasn't part of a church staff. He was the cupbearer to the king of Persia. An ordinary guy working an ordinary job in a pagan kingdom, but he understood that God had placed him there to make a difference. Do you understand that? God has placed you where you are to make a difference difference. That's true of you. It's true of me. It's true of every genuine born-again follower of Jesus Christ. And if you are not living your life to make that kind of difference, then you have completely missed the purpose of your salvation. So we spent last time together looking at the role of a dedicated person. This morning, we need to come and look at the reality of a difficult Problem. You see, Nehemiah was called to be a difference maker in his world, but we need to understand the context in which he was called to be that difference maker. I want you to look with me at some verses, beginning with the last part of verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 1 and reading through about verse 3. They're there in your message guide if you want to follow along. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, "...as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, "...the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, a couple of things you need to understand here. You might want to write these down if you take notes. Number one, we need to to remember right at the beginning that Nehemiah was a Jew. He was a Jew. He was part of God's Old Testament people. That's number one. But number two, we do not see Nehemiah living In the nation of Israel, instead we find him in the city of Susa. In fact, the verse actually says he was living in the citadel of Susa, which technically makes him a citadel man, right? So, I've always liked him, I guess, for that reason. If you didn't get that, ask somebody. They'll explain it to you. Susa was a fortified city that was one of the administrative capitals of the Persian Empire. It was really the winter playground of the Persian kings. What in the world was Nehemiah, a Jew, doing there? Well, you remember, we, I mentioned it again this morning, Nehemiah held a unique position in the Persian government. He was cupbearer to the king. But how in the world did Nehemiah, this Jewish man, come to work in the palace of a Persian king? Well, to understand that, and in fact, really, to be able to understand what is going to happen in this book, you need to understand something about the history of the nation of Israel. So, I need to give you a history lesson this morning. I, I, I'm just going to ask you, I stand in front of a bunch of glassy-eyed students just about every day, uh, and, and so I'm just going to ask you like I asked them, please don't tune out on me here. And you can follow along. I've given you a historical timeline there that I hope will help. Can I just say what I'm what I'm about to share with you is really, really, really important. That you understand this history. So if you'll allow me to put on my professorial hat for just a few minutes, minutes, I want to walk through this with you. But before we get to this actual timeline as you see it here, I need to go back even before that just to set the stage. Do you remember when the nation of Israel came into being after the exodus from Egypt? You will remember That the nation was led first by Moses, then by Joshua. And God spoke through these great men of faith and the people followed their leadership. But then after Joshua died, God raised up another group of, of, of people known as the Judges. You know the book of Judges. And so the people were led by the judges. If you read the book of Judges that chronicles their leadership, you will see that the end of the book of Judges, that would be chapter 21, verse 25, reads this way. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, everybody in the nation was doing exactly what he or she wanted to do. So the time of the Judges didn't turn out very well. In fact, if you read the book, you'll see that the people fell into disobedience. God would raise up a judge that would lead them back into obedience Then they would fall into disobedience again. God would raise up another judge that would lead them back into obedience. They would fall into disobedience again. This endless cycle, back and forth, back and forth. I mean, it was a real mess. So then God tried to lead his people through the prophet Samuel. But the people decided they didn't like that. They wanted to be like all of the other nations in the world, and they wanted a king. So God gave them a king. The first king's name was, do you remember? Saul. And things started out great with Saul, but they soon became an absolute disaster. The second king of Israel was who? David. Exactly right. Now David had his issues, but Scripture calls David a man after God's own heart, and during the reign of David, much good was done and much progress was made. Then after David died, he was succeeded by his son, Solomon. That's exactly right. Now, it was during the reign of Solomon that the kingdom of Israel reached really the height of its power and its prosperity, but the seeds of disaster were being sown even while Solomon was sitting on the throne. I want you to do something for me. I want you to take your Bible. And I want you to open it to 1 Kings chapter 11. I want you to just look at a few verses with me here before we get to this timeline. 1 Kings chapter 11. I want to show you something here. Let me read the first couple of verses of 1 Kings chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for they will surely turn away your heart after other gods." So even while Solomon was sitting on the throne and all of these great things were happening and the nation of Israel was reaching the pinnacle of its power, disaster was taking place because Solomon loved, says, many foreign women. Now, there are a lot of problems with just the sheer numbers here that it says he loved. You can go down and read 700 wives. <laughs> 300 concubines, which were sort of secondary wives. Now, let me tell you something. Back before I reformed, I used to listen to a lot of country music. And the Oak Ridge Boys had a song that went, trying to love two women is like a ball and chain. 700? 700? Do you realize that means the man had 700 mothers-in-law? Now listen, I love my mother-in-law. Greatest one there ever was, but 700? And this guy's renowned for his wisdom. I think he needed some psychotherapy. But that's not... the, The problem is not even so much that he loved these... Foreign women, which is a huge problem in itself. The problem is exactly what God's word says. They did not belong to the nation of Israel, so they turned his heart away from the God of Israel, and Solomon began to serve other gods. Now, pick up with verse 9 of 1 Kings chapter 11. And the Lord was very angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I commanded you, I will surely Tear this kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear it away, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So after Solomon dies, God does exactly what he said he would do. Can I just interject a word of here, uh, a word of caution to each of us here? God will do exactly what his word says he will do. And we need to pay desperate attention to God's directions and God's commands for our life. God did just what he said he would do. So now look at your timeline. 922 BC, the nation of Israel is split into two separate kingdoms the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, each with its own king. And from that point, things went from bad to worse. Neither kingdom sought the Lord. So you'll see there that in 722, God judges the northern kingdom of Israel, and it was overrun and absolutely destroyed by the armies of the Assyrian Empire. Boom. Gone. Now, you might think that the Jews in the southern kingdom of Judah, after seeing what happened to their brothers in the northern kingdom of Israel might have learned a lesson, but they didn't. They just kept on being disobedient. They kept on being rebellious toward God. And so God judged them too. And you'll see there, 605 B.C., the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar came in and they they, they launched a series of raids against the southern kingdom of Judah. The first raid occurred 586 B.C. At what time the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, they tore down the walls of the city, they tore down the temple, they burned all of the other buildings, they slaughtered many of the people, and they hauled off the brightest and the best of the Jews back to Babylon where they spent the next 70 years in captivity. Now listen, this is how you get folks like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Mordecai and Esther living in Babylon. That's how they got there. But because God is a God of grace, and because God is a God of second chances, God looked down upon those people And he saw that there was a remnant of faithful Israelites living in Babylon, and God had a plan for them. So look at your timeline, 539 B.C., the Babylonian Empire is overthrown by the Persian Empire, and now the Persians inherit from the Babylonians all of these Jewish captives. 535 B.C., the Persian king Cyrus issues a decree. Allowing these Jewish captives now to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their city. So they did. First group to go back, about 50,000 of them, went back under the leadership of a man by the name of Zerubbabel. They tried to get things going, but because of tons of opposition, it took them 15 years just to get the temple up. Second group went back, 458 B.C., under Ezra. But let me tell you, they were so morally decadent, that Ezra had to spend all his time trying to get the people right. So they got nothing accomplished. And that brings us to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was one of the Jewish captives who had grown up away from home. So when Nehemiah's brother, we read about this a minute ago in verses 1 through 3, when Nehemiah's brother, Hananiah, shows up in verse 2, the very first thing Nehemiah asks him is, Hananiah, how are things going back home? Since 538, we've, we've been trying to get home straightened out. How are we doing? How are we looking? Are we making any progress? Are we solving any of the problems? Hannah and I, has anything changed? And what did Hannah and I say? He said, Nehemiah, things are awful back home. The people are still living in shame. They're still living in great distress. The walls of the city of Jerusalem are still broken down. The charred remains of the gates are lying exactly where they were 141 years ago. And when Nehemiah got this word, I want you to look at his reaction here in verse 4. Look at it. It's right there in your message guide. Nehemiah says as soon as I heard these words about the city of Jerusalem and the situation of the people there as soon as I heard these words I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days now can we just work can we just work through this verse for just a minute When Nehemiah heard about the devastation in Jerusalem, it so impacted him that he couldn't even stand up. His knees went weak. He had to sit down. Not only did he have to sit down, but it says he sat down and he cried. But not only did he sit down and cry, he sat down and he cried and he mourned. And not only did he sit down and cry and mourn, he sat down and cried and mourned for days. That word mourn means to be in agony. So this was a visceral thing for Nehemiah. It tore at his guts. And this lasted not just for a few minutes or a few hours, but for days, something powerful and personal is taking place in Nehemiah's heart. And here's the thing. This wasn't the first time Nehemiah had heard about the destruction in Jerusalem. Nehemiah had known for all of his life what had happened 141 years earlier when, the, when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had destroyed the city of Jerusalem and torn down its walls. This wasn't new news to him. This was the whole reason Nehemiah was in Persia to begin with. He knew all this. In fact, all the Jews in the the Persian Empire knew this. What crushed Nehemiah was not that Jerusalem had been destroyed 141 years earlier. What crushed Nehemiah is what had happened since then. You see, the Jews from the time the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem had made absolutely no progress in building it back. In fact, they were regressing. After tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of God's people had gone back, after all the energy that had been expended, after all the money that had been spent, the people in Jerusalem were still in trouble, still living in shame, still living in disgrace. The uh, gates were still burned with fire. In spite of everything that had been done, the walls were still broken down. This crushed Nehemiah. And it changed his life. Now what does this have to do with you and me? It's a really good question. Because I want to suggest to you today that the broken down walls of Jerusalem are a very fitting Analogy for the world we live in today. There is devastation all around us, church. There is spiritual brokenness all around us. Folks, our society is broken, our communities are broken. Our churches are broken. Our families are broken. Many of our own individual lives are broken. That's the reality, and it's tragic, but you know that, don't you? This is not new news to you, is it? See, here's the tragedy. And this is what should absolutely tear you and me up. Over 2,000 years ago, God sent a Savior into the world who is the answer to every one of our problems. He is the answer to all of the brokenness in our society and our community and our churches and our families in our own individual lives. But church, after more than 2,000 years of Christianity, after more than 2,000 years of the church preaching and teaching and meeting and organizing and expanding vast amounts of time and energy and money after all kinds of programs and all kinds of emphases, after all the revivals and the seminars and the conferences and the Bible studies, after all kinds of Christian books and bracelets and bumper stickers and T-shirts, after all this time, church, and all this stuff, we look around and not only have things not gotten any better in many instances, they've actually gotten worse. And I want to conclude this morning by telling you part of the reason why. Too many of us, for whatever reason, Have never understood that God did not call us to be consumers of religious goods and services, but to be difference makers. Far too many of us have been content to live our own private Christian lives, enjoy our own private devotions instead of embracing our calling to be on mission with God, to see His purposes carried out in our society and in our communities and in our churches and in our own lives. You see, when Nehemiah got word about the spiritual devastation in Jerusalem. He could have looked at that. He could have listened to the report from his brother, shook his head, said how sorry he was, and just gone on with his life. He didn't have to worry about any of that. He had it made. He wasn't living in Jerusalem. He was in the king's palace. He was the cupbearer. Now, we really haven't talked about that a whole lot yet. So you might think somehow that being the cupbearer was a lot like being the dishwasher or the table waiter or something like that, but it wasn't like that at all. You see, the cupbearer was the one who tasted the king's wine He was the one who ate the king's food before it was ever given to the king because back in that day, if somebody wanted to knock the king off, the easiest way to do it was to poison him. And so the king had to have somebody he could trust. Someone who was willing to put his own life on the line to make sure the food and the drink weren't poisoned. So you you might can imagine how important this position was. The cupbearer went everywhere with the king. And because of that, there was this incredible intimacy that developed between the king and his cupbearer. So I want you to understand this. Nehemiah had it made. He was in a, in a position of great power and influence. He didn't have to worry about the devastation in Jerusalem. He was out of that mess. And yet, when he heard about that devastation from his brother Hanani, he forgot all about his own cozy, comfortable, predictable little world. And he became absolutely obsessed with the devastation in Jerusalem. And and as we go through this book, you're going to see that Nehemiah became so burdened about that devastation, so concerned, so consumed with the devastation in Jerusalem, that it became the overriding passion of his life so that he was willing to leave the palace, he was willing to leave his cushy job, he was willing to leave his comfort, his security, his identity, because he understood that God had called him to be a difference maker and to rebuild a place that was lying in absolute ruin. You know what? Some of us are on our way to heaven and we're satisfied. We're out of the mess. We got it made. We know we've been forgiven, born again, names written in the Lamb's book of life. We got ours. (laughs) Let everybody else get theirs. And so we get up on a nice little Sunday morning and we put on our nice little clothes and we come to our nice little church and we listen to a nice little sermon and we get in our nice little cars and we drive back to our nice little homes and we say nice little service. And we become consumed with our own little world and our brand of religion and our comfort and our security, and things going our way, that church, we have become cold and callous and indifferent to the spiritual devastation that is all around us in our families and our communities and our nation and among the nations. So here is the central truth of everything I've been trying to say to you this morning. Write this down. God cannot rebuild the walls of a culture until He can redirect the hearts of His people. He can't do one thing about that family member. He can't do one thing about that neighbor. He can't do one thing about that community until He can get a hold of our hearts And make us understand and realize that He has called us, saved us, and left us here to be difference makers. Can He redirect your heart this morning? Can He redirect your will? Can He get inside your heart and change your attitude and your prejudices and your selfishness? Twenty-five years before Nehemiah left Susa, to go to Jerusalem, another one of God's Old Testament people in Persia, was faced with a very similar challenge of making a difference in a desperate time. Her name was Esther. Like Nehemiah, she was a Jew. Like Nehemiah, she was out of the mess. Like Nehemiah, she had a position of privilege in the palace of the king. And like Nehemiah, she was facing a difficult problem. In this case, the destruction of the entire Jewish nation. Esther didn't have to worry about that because you know what she was? She was the queen. She had it made. Her life was safe and secure. And for her to even try and intervene, if you know the story of Esther, meant that she was going to risk Everything. She would have to put her very life on the line. And she didn't want to do that. But in the book of Esther, chapter 4, verse 14, her cousin Mordecai comes to her and asks her a question that was also a challenge and is also the challenge for you and me this morning. And you can see it there. Esther chapter 4, verse 14. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. A desperate time. A hopeless time. And God had placed Esther where she was, not for her own comfort, not for her own security, but because he knew that a madman By the name of Haman, would one day come up with a diabolical plot to destroy the very purposes and people of God, and God needed someone in a strategic position so that when Haman came on the scene, God would have that threat covered. Church, we've got an enemy today, he's attacking our families and our churches, and our communities, and our nation. And he is running amok among the nations. An enemy who is the enemy of all that is right and all that is righteous. An enemy of the things of God and the cross of Christ. And he's just trying to destroy everything what God wants to do in our families, in our churches, in our communities, in our nation, in the nations. Look around you, would you? There is spiritual devastation and ruin everywhere. But we've become at ease in Zion. Comfortable in the palace of our king. Here's the question for you this morning, the central question. Will you let this be your moment of truth? Will you let this be the time that defines you? Changes you? Or will you just sit back and continue to enjoy the ride. Something I've come to realize in my study of this book so far, and that is that I will become a difference maker only when the need to act outweighs the comfort of my own inactivity. And inactivity is comfortable. Status quo is comfortable. Coming to church Sunday after Sunday and hearing a nice sermon and doing it again next Sunday, that's comfortable. We're out of the mess, but there's still a mess. It's all around us. Will you be a difference maker? Will you be a Nehemiah? Will you be an Esther for this generation? Will you let this be your moment of truth? Will you let this be the time that defines you? Heavenly Father, for this time we are grateful. For your word we are thankful. May we never approach Your Word with the thought that it is the story of something that happened a long time ago in a place far away. But that we would see that it marks out the very boundaries of our contemporary existence. There are desperate problems all around us. Spiritual devastation all around us. And you're looking for some dedicated people. Some Nehemiahs, some Esthers who would just say, here my Lord, use me, take me. I I don't want to be at ease in Zion. I don't want to be comfortable in the predictability of my own Christian life, open my eyes to see the devastation, burden my heart, redirect my will, so that through me, you might begin to change people and families, communities, our nation and the nations. It's the prayer that we pray in Jesus' name. Would you join me in standing? We're going to sing this song. Take my life. Lead me, Lord. Make my life useful. Man, if we all sing that song and mean it this morning, what God could do, If we sing it, and we mean it. If God's spoken to your heart in some way this morning, these altars are open, I'm here to pray with you as somebody who's walking a tough journey with you, trying to figure out, God, what are you doing? In the ruins I see around me, how do you want to use me? How can I be a difference maker? If you would join me in that desire and that prayer, then just, you want me to pray with you, I'd be honored to do that. Pray right where you are. But as we sing, would you come as God speaks to your heart this morning, Kevin?